could have your attention, please. We're going to prepare to get started here today. We certainly appreciate everyone that brought some refreshments tonight. Uh, I want to encourage you, um, as you as you listen to tonight's talk by Dr. Jeffrey, that you um, write down, jot down your questions, even if it's on your cell phone, uh, so that you're able to ask them afterwards. There'll be a Q&A time. Um, and what I'll try to do for that, um, because we have folks that are streaming from various locations, I'll try to bring the my lapel mic to you so that you can be mic'd for the questions so people can hear them as well as the response. If that gets arduous, I'll just ask you to repeat the question uh, from the audience. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that we're all here and we're so thankful for those that may be streaming uh, from home. It's always good when we have the opportunity to have someone come in and, and share with us and, and give us uh, a wise perspective. Um, and of course, I, I like the fact that I just spilled water everywhere. <laughs> Someone you got that for me, Naomi. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> luckily, it's just on the floor. Um, <laughs> that's right. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased that it's uh, one of my friends. I've known uh, Dr. Jeffrey for, uh, oh, I don't know, eight or ten years. So in, in that time, and much of it when he was pastoring at uh, a uh, Reformed church in uh, Great Britain, in London, and have had a chance, I would say over the last five years or so, where he's come and visited where I was attending previously. Uh, did, he's, he's got all kinds of styles. He, he's done uh, talks at camps, youth camps, and uh, all kinds of venues. And of course, as I mentioned, Dr. Jeffrey, I'm going to let him tell you about his, uh, his uh, background a little bit. But most importantly, I want to say this. Here's a man who loves Jesus Christ, loves God's Word, and is certainly looking to have us work through the challenges of our culture using God's word. I'm going to ask the Lord to bless us and then ask Dr. Jeffrey to come up. Let us pray. Our heavenly and gracious Father, we give you praise. We thank you that you have given us your word, that uh, it may illuminate the steps of our lives, that we may be able to look out and observe and make evaluations and even judge at times the things that are around us according to your word. Father, I ask that you would open our ears to hear, Lord, open up our hearts that we may see and receive your word and these teachings. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Come on up. Thank you very much, sir. Yes, sir. Well, good evening. And um, I should say thank you, Pastor Nash, for the invitation to be here. Thank you, you guys, for um, coming out on this freezing cold evening. Um, who made those cookies, by the way? Was it you? You made those cookies? Those, those chocolate cookies? Oh, my goodness. Please, whoever's over by the table, just kind of take all those cookies and bring them right over here now. Because, um, they were lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I... Um, 
confessed to Pastor Nash earlier today that um, the last, um, I guess, last year or year and a half, as I've been thinking about the subject this evening, um, uh, that I'm going to be talking about this evening, has, uh, is, to, to be thinking about this subject has been the most miserable experience of my pastoral or teaching ministry as a pastor. Um, I like, uh, you, you alluded, Pastor Nash, to my different styles. I don't quite know what you're talking about. But um, I love teaching the scriptures and opening the word of God to people. And uh, it's been a privilege to be able to do it in many different settings. And what I really find much less pleasant is the kind of um, political or politicized discussion that we're inevitably um, led to this evening. Uh, one of the reasons is that um, in, a, in an audience that I don't really know very well, I'm conscious that there will be various political predilections in the room already, and I've no idea what they are, which is always interesting. And so at the outset, let me reassure you all that what I have to say this evening will, from my experience, offend both sides of the political spectrum equally. So if you feel in the opening few minutes that, why, why am I getting the boot put in over here? Just wait. <laughs> and the other guys will get it a few minutes later. Uh, and my aim is to talk to you a little bit about um, what has come to be known as the woke movement, and in particular, to uh, try and explain where it's come from, what it is, and what I think as Christians we ought to, if I say do about it, that um, isn't perhaps the best way of, of um, articulating it, but we'll get to that. On the 1st of June 2019, <coughs> the Southern Baptist Convention adopted what has come to be known as Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality. And it reads as follows, resolved, quote, Southern Baptists will carefully analyze how the information gleaned from these tools, by which they were referring to critical race theory, how information gleaned from critical race theory may be employed to address social dynamics, unquote. I pray that the Southern Baptist Convention will rescind this resolution at their earliest opportunity. They haven't done so yet. They've had the chance. Uh, if they don't do so, then my fear is that any hope they may have had left of any orthodox Christian voice in the decades ahead will be gone forever. So I urge you to pray for the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not suggesting we stop now. But that claim warrants some justification because it would be easy to find yourself wondering what the fuss is all about. If you read the resolution in a bit more detail, you find it's full of biblical caveats and safeguards. For example, they affirm the authority of Scripture they affirm the insufficiency of critical race theory to diagnose and remedy the effects of sin. They affirm loudly and clearly that only the gospel has the power to change people. They also repudiate the misuse of insights that may be gleaned from critical race theory. So you might think, well, what on earth is the problem? It's like, haven't they built fences around this thing that are high enough and strong enough to protect them from any harm that might come? Isn't this just a bit more conservative scaremongering? Well... Uh, I don't think it is. The real problem with this resolution is found not in the resolution. 
It's buried in the preamble. If you want to hide something nefarious, by the way, this is a little hint for you in the future. If you, if you want to hide something a little bit dodgy, as we say back in Britain, always bury it in the preamble, because nobody's looking in the preamble. They're all looking in the text of the resolution itself. In the preamble, they say critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. Twice more in the same document, they insist. They're only going to use critical race theory as an analytical tool, and therein lies the problem. Critical race theory is a strand of what has come to be known as critical social justice ideology. It's been known by different terms. I've used different phrases over the last year or two to describe it. But most recently in the literature written by its proponents, it's referred to as critical social justice theory. So that's how I'll describe it. It is not an analytical tool, or at least it's not merely an analytical tool. It is an activist's creed. It is a charter for action. It's not uh, a way of understanding social dynamics. It is an, a framework for changing the social order. The aim is to change the world, actually. Uh, it's, if you think of it from a Christian perspective, it's actually an alternative eschatology. It, it purports <coughs> to give a vision for how the world will change in the future, Remember the phrase, be on the right side of history? How the world will change in the future, and therefore how we should act to make sure that we are on the right side of history, what we should do, in other words. It is not just about understanding the world. It is about how we should live in it. And my fear is the Southern Baptist Convention have swallowed this Trojan horse. Um, and if you knew how the resolution was passed... Uh, well, you ask me later if you want to know how it's passed, but um, uh, let's suffice it to say that it was done in such a way that the resolution avoided the scrutiny that would have given uh, people who may have been sceptical the opportunity to oppose it. Once you let in the door something like this, it's not obvious how you can coexist with it. It needs to be thrown out, and I pray it will be. Now, this conviction is reflected in the title of a recent book by Charles Pincourt and James Lindsay called Counter-Wokecraft. Now, neither Charles Pincourt <laughs> nor James Lindsay are Christians. I, I believe James Lindsay is a lapsed Catholic. Both are very sharp individuals. Charles Pincourt is not Charles Pincourt's real name. He's a professor at a North American university somewhere. And you, do, you start to wonder, don't you, if a guy doesn't feel able to use his real name in a book criticising a movement, you do wonder whether something's gone wrong in the structures in which he's operating, but maybe we'll come to that another time. They explain that wokeness, by which is a colloquial term for the critical social justice movement, and I'll explain why it's got that term in a minute or two, is an ideology, but it's not just an ideology, it is an activist methodology. Here's a quotation from the foreword. It uses tactics, quote, which, quote, can rightly be referred to as woke craft in much the same way as espionage makes use of tools and tactics we would identify as spy craft. Spies aren't interested merely in theorising about spying. They don't sit in their office and write books on spy theory. Well, they do, but they do so so that they can carry it out. And spy craft is the set of tools that they put into action. And so Pincourt and Lindsay argue... Woke craft is actually the appropriate term for this ideology as it's put into action. And what I want to do is just firstly to help us to understand it, where it's come from, 
And in sketching some of its historical background, what I'm going to try and do is pause two or three times and try and show you how different aspects of the historical background of this movement are reflected in its modern contemporary manifestations. And then I want to give a couple of practical responses, just to say a couple of things about that. And then I hopefully will leave lots of time for questions. And nothing I say will be comprehensive, but hopefully it will be enough of a pointer in the right direction to be helpful and stimulate further discussion. So first, let me outline this movement and explain where it's come from and what it believes. The critical social justice movement traces its roots actually a long way back. Uh, but most clearly and obviously to the 19th century, to Karl Marx and his theories of class warfare. You will know if you've studied your history that Marx argued that all of life ought to be conceived as a conflict between different economic groups. The oppressive, wealthy bourgeoisie and the oppressed workers. Everything meaningful about you Everything that mattered concerning your standing in society, everything about your relationships that people were supposed to respond to, was determined exhaustively by which group you were a part of. It didn't so much matter what kind of a person you were, what mattered was which group you were in. Your identity, your moral status. And the aim, in Marx's thought, was to awaken what he called class consciousness, to awaken the oppressed workers to their oppressed status so that they would rise up and overthrow their wealthy, oppressive, bourgeoisie overlords. That's what the revolution would be all about, that awakened consciousness of the workers' oppressed status so they'd overthrow all those wealthy people who were bullying them. Now, in the mid-20th century, scholars of what came to be known as the Frankfurt School started to apply Marx's economic and political theories in other domains. There's a whole bunch of reasons for this. Some have suggested that it's because people realised that economics didn't matter to people quite so much as other social uh, characteristics. And so if you wanted to shape society in a particular way, you had to appeal to something more fundamental than just how much money you had or what job you had. But that needn't particularly concern us. Um, but the fact is that Marx's theories were applied in other domains. Max Horkheimer, one of the leading scholars of the Frankfurt School, used the term critical theory to refer to this outlook. So for example, um, you might apply the oppressed oppressor uh, categories in relation to people's skin colour. So that all of life was conceived of as a conflict between oppressed black people and their oppressive white overlords. And the aim of life was to awaken black people to their oppressed status so that they would rise up against their white oppressors. See, that's a, and you see all the same language from Marx is found in that brief description of what the Frankfurt School was all about. Now, over time, similar analyses were applied in other domains, generating not just critical race theory, black, white, but queer theory and critical gender theory and post-colonial theory and everything theory. Because you can transpose this, the logic of this mindset to any domain you like. And actually James Lindsay has, has highlighted how easy this is to do. It's actually not difficult to write a critical theory of almost anything. You just need to change the, the categories to which it's applied and then off you go. Now, just pause there one second. You can already see how some of the features of the modern critical social justice movement are 
have, have arisen from that historical background. For example, the place we occupy in the world, according to the modern social, critical social justice movement, is determined by the groups of which we're members. And you find um, that kind of echo of Marxian thought in all kinds of different places. You will find, um, some of you people look about university age, I was talking to three young men earlier, university age, right? You will find moral censure being leveled against your contemporaries, and perhaps you yourselves, not because of anything that you've said, or because of anything you've done, but because of the group that you are a member of. All men are sexist. All white people are racist. And it's not that anybody's seen you do anything racist or sexist. It's just that you're a member of a group that is characterized in that way. And it doesn't matter what you've done. You ought to apologize. You ought to apologize for your whiteness. And it sounds ridiculous. Well, it does sound ridiculous. But it's absolutely, if it's not happened on your campus, I'm amazed. And the point is, you're not apologizing for something that you've done. You're apologizing for your membership of the group, which membership renders you guilty. What matters about your moral status is the group that you're a member of. Another obvious connection with, um, between the modern scene and um, the historical background that we've sketched already, it is plain and obvious, isn't it, that critical social justice ideology is not merely an analytical tool. Right, please. Like, Marxism is not an analytical tool. Marxism is an agenda for world takeover. It is an alternative eschatology. It is an alternative vision of history. It's an agenda for revolution. And the activist strands of critical social justice ideology come from its Marxist background. Another connection, uh, in the vocabulary that we use colloquially to des describe this movement, Marx uh, used the, the verb to awaken class consciousness. The Frankfurt School used the same verb uh, in its uh, description of what it's trying to awaken in the consciousness of oppressed women or oppressed black people, to say, the aim is to be awakened, and from that we get the shorthand, woke. Yeah, you're, you are woke if you have been awakened to the reality of the social structures in which it's claimed you're living. That's where that vocabulary comes from. It's all Marxist in its background. From the um, uh, Frankfurt School's influence on this movement, uh, you see how the totalizing character is imported into the cultural sphere, so that all of life, all of life, becomes about pursuing social justice within this critical theoretic mindset. Wokeness, in a sense, exists to propagate wokeness. That's what it exists for. Just as Marxism, Marxism existed to propagate Marxist ideals and Marxist ideas in life in which it was embedded. And you see this in all kinds of interesting ways. Um, one example, um, you've seen um, celebrities called out on Twitter for failing to speak out against some purported injustice, yes? And all the people under the age of 28 who know what Twitter is are like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know what Twitter is and I'm more than Twitter. Anyway. Well, that's really interesting. Somebody's being criticised for what they didn't say. You think about that for a second. 
Why would you do that? Why would you criticize some uh, Hollywood actor or actress or some musician because they didn't speak out against racism? Well, because all of life, all of life is conceived of as a battle for justice <laughs> conceived in this way. And if you're not for us, you're against us. You can't be neutral in this battle. You're either anti-racist or you're a racist. And if you're not anti-racist, well, we know you're not anti-racist because you didn't tweet volubly enough about it. Therefore, you must be a racist. You see, that's why. That's the logic of the criticism of silence is violence. Isn't that a fascinating thing to say? Since when did me not saying anything become violence? Well, it, it does in this worldview within which the only alternative to fighting for the cause is to be the problem, or part of the problem. Because all of life, remember, is about this. You also see it in the corporate sphere. It's fascinating. I checked. I, I looked up the mission statement and the value statement of Ben and Jerry's ice cream today. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just Did I wake some baby up? I'm really sorry. Um, uh, well, you were laughing. I mean, just go to the website, check it out. It's really interesting. You thought Ben and Jerry's was an ice cream manufacturer. Yeah, well, check. Go check. I mean... I can't remember exactly how they phrase it, but it's something along the lines of, we use ice cream to change the world. Uh, the company's agenda is about pursuing justice conceived in this way. I should keep, I, I want to add a parenthesis. I'm not against the pursuit of justice. I actually think all of life is about the pursuit of justice, but conceived in biblical terms. Uh, isn't all of life about the pursuit of the righteousness that is found in Christ? Yeah, to be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but a righteousness. That's what all of life is about. It, it really is, in that sense then, an alternative religion. I, I, I say that just in this context because I want to make it clear I'm not against justice. I'm against this vision of justice. But it's fascinating. you know. So Ben and Jerry's capitulated long ago. Starbucks closed down all their stores to lay on a program of critical social justice awareness training. One, one day... Um, uh, I, this is my prophecy. I've made this prophecy before. I'm going to make it again. So you heard it here first. One day, in the boardrooms of some great American company, American Airlines or, um, I don't know, Morgan Stanley or something like that, there's going to be a, uh, a conversation which goes something like this. The, um, the diversity and uh, awareness person, I don't know what they'll be called on the board, will, will ask a question. How much of our budget are we spending on critical social justice awareness training and programs and anti-racist um, initiatives and so on. And the, the, whoever's responsible for the money, I don't know who that would be, the, the treasurer, the company treasurer, I think, will say, we've spent a total of 7% of our budget on critical social justice awareness training this year, and he'll sit back pr proudly. And the critical social justice advocate on the board will say, what on earth are we spending the other 93% on? <laughs> because anything else would be a distraction from what the mission of this company is. You thought, anybody here work for American Airlines? Like the day will come, I've got a couple of friends who work for American, if we don't change course, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, stick, stick with me, <laughs> you'll get there. The rest of you can ask me afterwards. Um, then we will have to either affirm that all of life is not about 
critical social justice advocacy, or we will have to concede that any effort we spend on doing anything else is a distraction from and therefore opposed to what our mission is. I predict that those conversations will take place in boardrooms of companies that do not rescind their on-paper commitment to this ideology. Uh, back to the history. Bear with me one moment, if you would. Not only were the cookies wonderful, the coffee is also excellent, so thank you for whoever made that. Uh, the revolution to which Marx alluded and which the Frankfurt School picked up need not be entirely peaceful. This was made explicit in the work of uh, Herbert Marcuse, a prominent member of the Frankfurt School, in an essay that he wrote in the 60s called Repressive Tolerance. You really ought to read that essay. Um, there's, uh, James Lindsay has done a, an extended reading and commentary on it on his podcast. and I don't agree with everything James Lindsay says, but he is a very smart individual. And um, that series of podcast episodes is well worth listening to, just to try and get a feel for what Marcuse is saying. It's not an easy essay to read. In it, Marcuse explains that physical violence is justifiable when practiced by the oppressed, by which he explicitly identifies the political left, against their oppressors on the political right. He says it's, it's kind of theoretically wrong to be violent, but in these circumstances, when the oppressed use it in the establishment of justice conceived in this way, it is justifiable. And of course that analysis is then transposed not just uh, out of the economic sphere into every other sphere. Any oppressed group can legitimately following Marcuse's lead, use violence in pursuit of justice. So you get this fundamental asymmetry, which extends to these, all these other domains. Um, and what happens is that uh, expressions of, uh, I'll use the phrase conservative with a small c, um, I don't think you understand what I mean by that. I'm not interested in party politics at all at this point. Um, but in, in the interest um, of sh a sh kind of shorthand, um, uh, opposition to this progressive movement um, uh, tolerance of conservative views is tolerance of oppression and is not acceptable. And therefore, such views can be opposed with, if necessary, physical violence. But certainly with censorship and howls of outrage. And you get this asymmetry. It's really interesting to notice it in the media. Um, how many of you remember... A few years ago, uh, a certain actor standing up at a public awards ceremony and just <laughs> shouting, I won't say because young people here, F Trump. And everyone, remember? Cheered. And then a few years later, the entire media goes completely ballistic when somebody says, let's go Brandon. <laughs> Why? And we all think it's kind of interesting and, and slightly... Um, funny, and you laughed, and it is ridiculous. And then you think a bit further, and you think, well, it's the rank hypocrisy is the obvious thing that occurs. You know, it's like this, what, what's source for the goose is not source for the gander, apparently. Um, and then you feel irritated by being so patronised. Like, I, and I feel for the, the lady, the journalist, I won't name her, you know who she is. I feel for her because, you know, she's, there she is on a kind of big uh, platform and the camera's on her and the crowd's going, <laughs> well, the, the crowd isn't saying, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> what's she supposed to do? Um, and so just like this, she comes up with 
you know, they're saying, you know, Biden, and let's go, and she just thought of that on the spur of the moment, which is pretty creative. <laughs> but, like, aren't you, aren't you sick of being treated like an idiot? Like, are you not, does that not just, like, how stupid do you think I am? How stupid do you think hundreds of millions of people are that they will think, oh, yeah, of course, that's what the crowd's chanting. Like, how bad are your microphones? <laughs> so, so all these reactions. And, and we, in the process, if we're not careful, we forget to ask the fundamental ideological question. On what grounds is the outrage at... Um, let's go Brandon, justified, when a guy can stand on a stage and shout F Trump. Why? And it's Marcuse. Marcuse is the reason. This asymmetry is right there. In a, an essay which has been read and studied and given to undergraduates in universities since the late 60s. You can all see a connection with postmodernism already. This connection was made explicit by Michel Foucault in the 70s, um, who famously argued that there's no such thing, well, uh, did he argue this? He, either that there's no such thing as truth, objectively understood, or if there is, it can't be known objectively, which kind of amounts to the same thing practically. What it means is that all claims to truth cannot be actually claims to truth. So what are you trying to do? If you, if you claim that something is true, what you're really trying to do, do is manipulate a conversation or an encounter or a social setting. In Marcuse's vocabulary, all claims to truth are in fact tacit exercises of power. Because if you take away truth, what have you got left? That's all you've got left. And, Marcu uh, and uh, Foucault believed that that's what people who claimed to be speaking the truth are actually doing. And truth then is, becomes a weapon, in his mind, in the, the hands of the oppressors to keep the oppressed in their place. And what that means then is, so Foucault then goes further and says, so the proper aim of discourse, the proper aim of a conversation and, and of reading or listening to a conversation is not to try and figure out who's right, not to get to the truth. If you and I have a conversation about you know, what, what's the, uh, the best way for a family to function, what we should be doing and what the onlookers should be doing is not trying to figure out the answer to that question. What we should be trying to do is to unmask the tacit power plays that are at work, which in this case will almost certainly be power plays on my part because I'm a man and a pastor, and if I'm talking to you, you're a lady and you're not a pastor. Yeah? So I'm, I'm, I'm the oppressor twice, male, <laughs> authority figure in a church, and... Uh, and so if we and I were talking about the appropriate way to organize a family, what the ev everybody else should be doing is trying to figure out how I'm manipulating you by claiming to dis be seeking the truth when in fact what I'm doing is, is just an exercise of raw power because there is no way to find truth through discourse. Now, why is that significant? Well, you just think about what the contemporary woke mo movement does. Um, no platforming, cancel culture. It's, it's almost become synonymous with the woke movement, hasn't it? And we all find it slightly irritating and just a bit ludicrous. And Like, aren't you so fragile? You can't cope with hearing somebody who's, who has a different opinion from you. Well, think, think, think about where it comes from. Why would you no-platform somebody? Don't, don't you have this kind of instinct? I hope you have this kind of instinct. Uh, appropriate to your age and your stage of 
growth. So some of you young people, would your parents, there are some things your parents wouldn't let you read yet. But, you know, once you become a, an adult, you know, 16 years old or whenever it is, you, when you, you ought to be able to think for yourself in a more kind of structured way, you want to encounter claims which stand against what you already think in order to sharpen yourself and grow and come to understand. You discover life is more complex than you ever thought it was. And, and we have a discussion, don't we? You have people, you have, if, if we all just agree with each other all the time, it'd just be, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, 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 we can go home now. You know, that's boring. You want to have a, a discussion, you want to hear sometimes points of view which are directly opposed to you. It's really interesting to go and hear a really high-quality feminist speaker, for example. Isn't it? Even if you're not a feminist, because like, I'd like to hear Jermaine Greer, really articulate lady. <laughs> On which note, it's really interesting that she was cancelled by Cardiff University. <laughs> like, why was she cancelled? And the reason is, not just we don't like hearing that, but there is no truth that can be discovered by having Jermaine Greer speak. If we let her speak, what we're doing is giving a platform for an oppressor. The, the feminist movement has been eating itself alive for the last four decades, so if you're too, too many generations back, like Jermaine Greer is, then you're now perceived as uh, not an ally um, within the contemporary social justice movement. And so it's not the case, in other words, that people said, well, let's hear this tremendously influential and articulate and very fiercely intelligent woman speak. We could have something to learn. There's nothing to learn. So what do you do with claims to truth that are opposed to yours? Well, they're not actually really about truth. They're about power. And what do you do with somebody who's powerful, who's opposed to you? You shut them down. That's the ideological roots of cancel culture. It's all in Foucault and behind him Marcuse and the rest of the Frankfurt School and behind them Marx. This was all specifically applied to race, first by Derek Bell who was a legal scholar at Harvard in the 70s. He coined the term critical race theory. And again, it's applying Marx's analysis to, uh, and I object to the term race in this context. I want to register that caveat as well. I don't think the term race is the appropriate biblical and therefore just the appropriate term to use to describe people of different skin shades. Um, we can talk about that if you'd like to another time. But just for the sake of discussing things in the terms in which their proponents describe them, I think it's reasonable for us to do that. Um, uh, he coined the term critical race theory uh, to describe his view that all of life was a conflict between black people and white people. Racism, then, is the ordinary state of society. Society is just racist, because all of life is about this conflict. And even attempts by white people to oppose racism are actually done in cynical and self-interested uh, ways. It's just an attempt for you to kind of, uh, if you're white, to uh, avoid criticism. And you're always subject to the criticism that you're just doing it for that reason. The term intersectionality, which you may have heard, was introduced by uh, Bell's student, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, to highlight that many people exist at what she called the intersection of multiple oppressed groups. So um, uh, black women, for example. It's not just that they're uh, black and therefore oppressed and women and therefore oppressed but black women she said experience oppression of a kind which is different from the sum of the oppression experienced by women and black people there's an additional element that comes from being at the intersection of these boundaries 
And uh, the effect of group identity is then compounded, and it's compounded the other way. So if you're a straight, white, cisgendered male, then probably you'll be told at some point during your university course that you're not to speak. Because for you to do so would be for the lecturer to allow you to oppress. Now, just a, a, a caveat here. Um, I don't think it's untrue that women, black people, actually gay people and trans people and other people who are labelled as oppressed minorities by critical social justice ideology, I don't think it's untrue that they are oppressed and harmed. Okay? There is such a thing as actual discrimination. I don't want to be heard as denying that sexism exists or racism exists. I'm going to come to this in a, in a moment. Um, my claim is simply that, first, it is not to be defined, and then second, it is not rightly to be addressed in the way that critical social justice ideology does. I'm absolutely not wanting to deny the existence of racism, as you'll see when I turn over the page and try to offend the other half of the room. <laughs> uh, the denial of your complicity in racism will now be called white fragility and is evidence of guilt, because after all, I'm not racist. Well, that's exactly what a racist would say. <laughs> and we know you're racist already, because you're white. What further evidence do we need, as somebody once said? Um, interestingly, within this framework, any disparity in outcomes in any domain of life is to be explained on the basis of systemic discrimination of some kind. Um, the, the assumption is that the only, if all of life is about the battle between oppressor and oppressed, the only thing that could affect your outcomes is which group you're a part of. Um, and so uh, let's suppose there's a disparity in uh, exam results in a certain area between people of different skin shades or men and women or people of different income levels. Uh, that, the explanation for that disparity has to be some kind of discrimination. And once you've identified all the bits of discrimination that you can find, you still attribute all the rest to discrimination. You just call it systemic discrimination. Systemic means all the discrimination that we actually can't find, but we know must be there, because the theory tells us that all differences in outcomes are to do with discrimination. And finally, there is no possibility of change. Remember, you, you're just white. I mean, there's no possibility of atonement, no possibility of forgiveness. Um, all you can do is this long, continued fight against oppression everywhere, always, forever, which makes it really ironic that you have someone like Robin DiAngelo, who happens, and I, frankly this is irrelevant in substantive terms, but within her framework, happens to be a white woman, writing a book called White Fragility and charging several tens of thousands of dollars for anti-racist bias training for, to get white people out of this way of thinking which they can't get out of and which even her attempts to educate people out of actually, by her theory, must be motivated by cynical self-interest. Well, it's not hard to find the cynical self-interest in somebody who's pulling in 50 grand for a week's seminars. Right, so, okay, that is a rough sketch of the historical background, excuse me, 
and some of its contemporary connections. I know I'm leaving things out, but in the interest of time, let me um, uh, finish, and this will, this will take a few minutes more, I hope you will forgive me that, <coughs> with uh, two uh, exhortations, which amount to my uh, prescription to us to deal with this situation. Obviously, I don't think that what we should do to deal with this situation is jump on board and embrace the vision of justice which is found within this movement. But I do think we should do something. And two things in particular, and I want to focus on critical race theory because um, it's the hottest topic at the moment and it, it perhaps is the one that we need to pay the closest attention to for the reason that will become obvious in about five seconds' time. The first thing we must do is utterly to drive out all actual discrimination on the basis of skin color, or anything else, actually. All actual ungodly discrimination from our churches. It must be the case that nobody is discriminated against on the basis of the tone of their skin. If it is, the case that in our churches as we sit around and we try to, to work through the uh, social catastrophe which is already pulling apart various parts of American and other Western societies we sit around and there's actual racism in our churches God help us or actually probably God won't um, and the question of race is probably the most potent because uh, we have to acknowledge um, that there is in our history a very clear, uh, recent uh, history of actual racism in America, certainly in Britain. I mean, we invented colonialism. Um, the fact that we didn't actually have slavery on our shores, didn't actually enslave black people, hardly mitigates the catastrophe to which we contributed. Uh, and if there is the slightest hint of that left, then I am ready to go on record as claiming that I believe this is that the critical social justice movement will then be God's judgment against us. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says that one way in which God deals with people's sins is by handing them over to the consequences of them. Um, and you know the passage very well. Um, people choose various kinds of idolatrous, and sexually perverse lifestyles. And what God does after a time is to say, well, if that's what you want, if that's the kind of world you want to live in, let me show you what that's like. And he'll hand them over to the consequences of their actions. So let's imagine for a moment that we wanted a world in which people were judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. Let's imagine that that's actually what we were like. And tragically... Has it not been that, that way? In, in the past, that has been the case. I'm not saying for anybody here, and I'm not imputing guilt to anybody here. I'm making the simple historical observation that churches in your country and mine have been guilty of actual discrimination against people on the basis of the color of their skin. What would God do? Romans 1. He might hand us over to a society in which people are judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. But you might just flip it around. That's the world you want to live in. Okay. If you've done it before, 
in all kinds of other different ways in relation to different sins, he'll do it again. And that's exactly what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is a view of the world in which you're judged by the color of your skin. So, like I said, uh, I don't think God will help us. If that's what we're actually like, I think God is doing this to us. So we actually have to repent of any actual racism in our churches, in our lives, in our hearts. And it's complex when you uh, zoom out from black-white discrimination and start to think about other categories of uh, different groups of people. Because what the critical social justice movement does is to conflate different group identities and treat them all in the same way. Let me explain what I mean. So consider three polarities, male-female, gay-straight, black-white. Now what happens in critical social justice ideology is all three are treated in the same way. So you've got an oppressor and an oppressed group, and the oppressed group is the victims, uh, are the victims of the, the oppressors who are morally culpable for their oppression. And you're a member of the oppressor group, then you're guilty. Okay? Well, hold on a second. <laughs> I mean, how does the Bible describe those different categories of person or behavior? Well, male, female, well, maleness and femaleness, that's a created gift. That's a good thing. Both male and female are good things. And actually, maleness or femaleness is highly relevant in certain situations. That aspect of our created nature constrains what things we can do very sharply. You know, try as you might, gentlemen. <laughs> there are certain things you can't do. Similarly, ladies, there are certain things you, you know, can't do. Your bio you, you can't beat biology, however much you chop off. And so what you want to say in relation to that is, well, of course there are um, differences between good and wonderful femaleness and good and wonderful maleness. And there are certain things that is right that men do and certain things that it's right that women do. And scripture says more about that than might be apparent just from looking at our biology. That, in that sense, to discriminate, that is to say to distinguish between men and women, is right in relation to certain activities. And of course, there's then a debate about what the Bible says about those different activities. Fair enough. But male, female ought to be treated in that way by Christians. What about gay, straight? Well, that pair of labels corresponds very simply to a moral decision and an accompanying lifestyle choice, albeit one that goes very deep um, into the way people think of themselves and the kind of habits people have adopted. Um, gay quote-unquote, corresponds not to created goodness, but to a certain sinful set of moral choices, which doesn't render somebody beyond the grace of God. No, no sin repented of repent, renders anybody beyond the grace of God. But, but what we don't want to do is to think male, female, gay, straight, they're in the same category, right? Because there are different moral freight attached to those polarities. Now, what about black-white? Well, Again, created goodness, which is of zero moral or social consequence in relation to anything at all. In fact, it's easier to make a case in favour of discriminating on the grounds of a person's height than 
on the basis of the tone of their skin. Because at least if you're picking a basketball team. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can, you can make a case for discriminating on the basis of height in certain domains. I am yet to find a domain of life in which it's possible to argue that you could legitimately discriminate at all in any way on the basis of the colour of a person's skin. I mean, the only thing I can, well, maybe I can think of one, is like if you wanted to find an actor to play the part of a certain person, like maybe you could just about get away with that. But can you think of another domain in which the colour of a person's skin is remotely relevant to anything, to their moral standing, to their social standing, to the kinds of roles they could fulfil in society? It's just ludicrous, isn't it? Martin Luther King uh, envisioned a society in which uh, we will be judged not by the colour of our skin but by the content of our character. Um, his doctrine has come to be known as colour blindness. Colour blindness is the doctrine for which we should strive. It's actually a doctrine which the critical social justice ideolo ideologues despise. It's fascinating to see that the critical social justice movement is not the legitimate heir of the civil rights movement. It is not. It is directly opposed to it. But we cannot sit here saying that while there is an ounce of actual racist intent or discrimination in our hearts or lives or churches or families or anywhere else. Um, you know, the way that you will know this, um, I want to give you the, the diagnostic toolkit. You know it's quite hard to, to root out sin sometimes? And sometimes you can think, you're, you know, I think I've dealt with that one, and then suddenly it leaps up and gets you. I want to, I want to tell you what, how you will know. How you will know if there is the slightest hint of racist uh, intent or thinking in your heart. It will become obvious to you when you see in your churches, wherever you are, uh, young white gentlemen dating a young black lady. And if in that circumstance you experience the slightest flicker of surprise, discomfort, um, puzzlement, questioning, anything at all that you would not have experienced if you had seen a young white couple or a young black couple. If you see in yourself any of that reaction, then you will know that you have not yet successfully rooted out the actual racist motives that are in your heart. And I say that knowing that um, this is one of the points at which questions have been asked. Last time I spoke on this subject, a couple of people asked me questions about it, and I want to address the questions. I think it's only reasonable for me to try and sharpen the point by um, by anticipating a couple of objections that somebody might raise. So, for example, one might say, yeah, but okay, what about cultural differences? And I, I had a conversation with a gentleman who said, yeah, but look, come on. Let's be realistic. This was in the American South. It was a few, uh, a few weeks ago. If, you, if you're raised in a, a white community and then you meet somebody who's raised in a black community, there'll be all kinds of differences in cultural expectation, in family life, in family background, in the ways that you... Uh, the food you eat, perhaps, all kinds of other different things about the, the different aspirations. Um, uh, your relatives will have different views of uh, the appropriateness of certain things. And 
uh, there'll be different musical and other cultural kind of influences upon you. Isn't it the case, pastor, somebody might say, and somebody did say, isn't it the case that those cultural differences might mean that we ought to be, you know, oh, a little bit surprised, a little bit kind of, oh, I wonder if they're going to run into trouble. Can you see the argument? And I say, no. Or rather, here's what I say. Um, is it the case that there are cultural differences between people? Right. There, I married a half-Austrian Jew. Let me tell you about cultural differences. <laughs> we, she and I didn't even know she was Jewish until some years after we were married. Let me tell you about cultural differences. Um, if, if you go to different parts of your city or your town, or you walk down your street, or you come to London, let me, tell, let me walk you around London, and I'll show you all the different white people. And vast cultural differences, uh, differences of family background, differences of expectation, musical preferences, and so on and so forth. Obviously, there are cultural differences between any two people. And any two people who are considering getting married are going to be wise to think about those cultural differences, yes? And, like, and you might think, look, we're very, very different. Uh, you know, I, you, no, you get to know each other a bit, and you might just... It might just seem that he has certain aspirations and certain vision of life, and she has a certain vision of life, and they're, they're just not compatible. And she might just say, and he, or he might say, listen, I'm really I love you so much, but I just don't think it's going to work between us. And that's fine, actually. That's actually fine. It's a wise thing to do. And that's what courtship is for, actually, to, to discover those things. Or they might say, listen, um, you know, we're just so different, and it's going to be a real challenge, but we want, to make, we want to proceed with our relationship in spite of those differences, and that's fine, too. Since when, since when did skin colour become a proxy for any of those differences? Skin colour is meaninglessly related to all those cultural differences. The in more technical terms, the diversity within the population of people of a certain skin shade is so much greater than the diversity between the averages of the distributions of people of the same skin shade, a different skin shade. So, yeah. you, you know what I was trying to say. You are pissed in statistics, you can figure that out. Let me give you an illustration, okay? Let's imagine you've got a friend who says, uh, who's coming around visiting unexpectedly, and they, they call you up and say, I was thinking of dropping in. And like, oh, wonderful, great to see you. And they say, just to remind you, um, uh, my, my um, uh, daughter uh, is gluten-free. She's got gluten intolerance. And like, it's a serious one, you know, please don't, you know, to be sitting messing around. And, and you say, yeah, sure, no problem at all, don't worry. It'd be lovely to see you, looking forward to see you. And they come, and uh, he sort of stops you on the, the doorstep, and you arrive, and he said, I just wanted to let you know, we've sorted out the gluten thing, we're not going to serve them anything white. You're like, what do you mean? Well, you know, some white foods have gluten in them. <laughs> and so we, did, we thought, we just won't serve you anything white, because, you know, white bread has got gluten in it. What are you going to say? Well, yeah. <laughs> like some white food has got gluten in it, but so some brown food. Um, and there's a whole bunch of white food that hasn't got any gluten in it at all, like white rice. And then if you were in a philosophical mindset, you might say, you know, the colour of food is a really bad proxy 
for its suitableness for my daughter. Please remember to say the same thing about the gentleman who wants to court her. The colour of his skin is an extremely bad proxy for anything meaningful about his relational suitableness for your daughter. That's how you'll know. Of course, there's always the additional argument, and we'll, uh, you will encounter this in certain parts of uh, this country and elsewhere, that, okay, I, I have no prejudice. And honestly, I don't. But, you know, other people. What, what, isn't it the case that what other people might think might make it more difficult for this couple? Can, can you think of social contexts in which you might think that's the case? You know, I think it's, I, I love this couple. They obviously go great together. They love each other. But, you know, is it really wise because of, you know, prejudices that other people have? And to that, you know, I want to say something really simple. When exactly did the prejudices and ignorance of other people dictate how Christians live their lives? When, when did we start to care about what bigoted, prejudiced other people think? Do you not make decisions all the time because you think it's the right thing to do? And to hell with the world, actually. If, that, if, they, if they think that, then they're wrong and ignorant, and we pray for them that they'll change their minds, but meanwhile, we're going to do what's right. So that's the first thing we've got to do. Second, um, I want to encourage you to embrace what a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, um, has called post-mill spirituality. I need to back up a little bit and explain what I'm talking about. Um, in my view, and I hope in yours, Pastor Nash, the Bible teaches what we might call post-millennial theology. What that means is that uh, Psalm 2, Jesus has received the nations of the world as his inheritance. Romans 4, in Christ, the church has inherited all the world as its inheritance. Matthew 13, the kingdom of God will grow and continue to grow through history like leaven permeating a loaf, like a seed multiplying 30 or 60 or 100 times. Daniel chapter 2, the kingdom of God is like a rock that is becoming a mountain that will one day displace all those other ungodly and idolatrous kingdoms and fill the whole world so that the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, Jesus is winning. He's won already. History is the story of his victory being worked out as the nations are discipled. Matthew 28. There are three different ways in Greek to say disciple people from the nations. Jesus uses none of them in Matthew 28. He doesn't say disciple people out of the nations or in the nations or from the nations. He says disciple the nations. All the nations. And the nations. Are we to imagine that the, the prayer that Jesus must pray to his father, echoing Psalm 2? Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. Nah, don't fancy that. Thank you. Of course, the nations are being given as a gift to Jesus Christ. Um, now, post-mill spirituality is the emotional corollary of that. If you believe, and you should, see me afterwards, um, <laughs> that Jesus is in the process of conquering all the nations of the world, bringing them voluntarily under his loving and gracious rule. If you believe that's happening, what's your disposition towards the world going to be like? Isn't it the case, if you think that Jesus is in the process of showing love to a thousand generations and drawing people from every nation to him, that you would be a little less panic-stricken about one generation of craziness or three or four generations of foolishness. And it's really strange to me sometimes that post-millennial 
Christians who embrace a post-millennial theology, as soon as you get one tiny blip in history, they all start scurrying around like frightened dispensationalists, you know, terrified about the implosion of their society. It's like, chill out, will you? Really? We don't need to panic. We can build for the long-term future, confident that we might have small beginnings. We might still be, I think we're still in the days of the early church, personally. Uh, we're in a day of small beginnings, and give it time. And let the kingdom grow. Build deep and solid foundations in your children's lives and in your workplace. And don't expect to see change overnight. Don't panic that there's some craziness going on. Obviously, it might come your way. You might need to make a stand against it. But we don't need to. Social media doesn't help because it encourages the shrill and the reactionary and the, the kind of quick-fire response. It doesn't encourage careful reasoned thought and discussion and gracious, uh, intelligent. Uh, it doesn't, social media doesn't encourage you to sit down for an hour and think like you're doing now. I think we sometimes misunderstand Jesus' sayings about understanding the signs of the times. We imagine that that means we've got to be on the lookout constantly for the next thing that's going wrong. In the context, when Jesus talks about understanding the sign of the times, he's talking about the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is that the prophet will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the fish before being sent to preach to the nations again. And he says, in the same way, the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth before he sends his spirit to continue his work through his apostles and his church to preach the gospel to the nations. Right? So the sign of Jonah is not about checking your Facebook feed to read the latest ridiculous edict to come out of Capitol Hill. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not react to the short term. It's see the long-term vision for the future, embodied in Christ's resurrection and the hope that flows from it. It doesn't mean chill out and do nothing. There'll be many, many things. A any, <laughs> I, I know I don't, anybody here who's teaching their children at home doesn't need me to tell you that planning for the long-term future does not mean chill out and do nothing, does it, Mum? <laughs> right? It means energetic, it means hard work, it means... Um, getting up early means late nights planning tomorrow's schoolwork. It means diligently applying yourself. Because what you've got to do, you've got to be better at all the math problems and all the physics and all the history and everything else that, than your contemporaries are. And you've got to actually go further back and understand the his biblical and theological and philosophical and historical foundations of everything. You've got more work to do. It means devotion and commitment to whatever your vocation is. I was reading some stuff from Calvin and Luther just to the congregation I um, was speaking to yesterday and today um, in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and just reminded of the Reformation rediscovery of the dignity of secular vocation. And some of you in the workplace, you work at, maybe you work for the government, maybe you work in industry or in research or IT or whatever it is. And God has given you that precious calling for you to, whatever your hand finds to do, work at it with all your might. We're not talking about inactivity. It's just we're not talking about panic-stricken angst and shrill reactionariness to every foolish wind of change that blows through. Relax. Jesus is winning. Sometimes it seems to me like um, you know, stock market investors have something to teach us. If, if, you, if you have... Um, if you have a financial advisor who encourages you to check the financial uh, indices every 20 minutes, get yourself another financial advisor. Right? <laughs> you want a financial advisor who tells you to check your dividends once every three months. Right? And wait. Don't panic. 
just keep drip feeding, keep drip feeding, investing. You get close to retirement, you think, okay, I've got to shift things slightly. But you do not want to be reacting to every little blip up and down because you just won't sleep at night and you'll make all kinds of stupid decisions. My financial advisor tells me that his main job is to stop his clients doing stupid things. <laughs> like, they see the market drop 3% and they Oh, I, need you to, I need you to sell everything. It's like, please sit down. It's not being stupid. I told you that you were going to do this and you denied it and now you're doing it. Sit down. We're not going to sell. Just let me relax. Stay in the market. Stay in the market. Because the market's going up. If, if, you know, if somebody um, could uh, tell you, on the day of my birth, if, if somebody had invested $1,000 in the S&P 500, you know how much I'd be worth now? If I'd reinvested the dividends every day since the day of my birth, I'd be worth half a million dollars nearly. And I wouldn't have had to do anything. Now, you have been told what the, S the spiritual S&P 500 is going to do for the whole of human history. What are you going to do? Sell every time it drops 3%. <laughs> no, 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 just, just stick it in. Keep investing. Keep investing in your children, in your marriage, in your work, in your relationship with your pastor, in your relationship with your friends, in worshipping God, in reaching out to your neighbours who don't know Christ, and just wait, chill out, because Jesus is winning, and there's no need to panic. All right, we're done. Well, I'm done for now. Um, you've been extremely patient. Did I talk for nearly an hour? Over an hour. Um, I, I think we're, I'm happy to take questions, but I suggest um, there may be one or two folks who actually need to go, and I, I don't want you to, to feel at all awkward about that. If you need to go or need to go to the bathroom or need some more coffee or one of those cookies, <laughs> then please, please do go. Um, uh, well, should we begin like in one minute and take some Q&A? Is that a good thing to do? Sure. Yeah. So sure. if you need to stretch your legs, whatever. Otherwise, stick a hand in the air, and if you've got any questions, we can just kick off Q&A time. I, I do want to say this. If you're watching from Zoom, weren't able to attend, and you have a question, um, you can text me, and I'll be happy to read that question. We may not be able to get to them all, but I'm willing to do that. And my phone number, for those of you that don't have it handy, 318-547-6047. Um, or look it up in the church directory. But... Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. All right, so somebody's already headed for the cookies, but nobody seems to have left. So uh, uh, you, you've all been very attentive. And, and any, any questions or comments you want to raise, anything you want to talk about? Questions. And then I'm going to send Pastor Dan running around with his microphone so we can pick it up. There's a hand there, right. this lady, and then a gentleman at the back. Lady who, who's just right here. Stick a hand nice and high so we can see it. Otherwise, Dan's eyes are short. I was just curious. Um, you said that you don't think race is the correct word biblically mm. from, a, from a biblical standpoint. What do you think is the, the right terminology? Right, yeah. I don't think race is the correct term to describe people of different skin color. Uh, no, I think skin color is probably the best term. But, um, the problem is the way that the term race is deployed in that... Um, uh, in contemporary usage, uh, divides people up as though there's something constitutive about skin colour that puts them in hermetically sealed categories. Now, there's all kinds of things wrong with that. Apart from anything else, I, I, I pastored a church in London that had Ugandan, Burundian, Nigerian, Zairean, uh, sorry, Zambian, Gambian, um, one or two other 
African, that there are very significant differences between people from different African nations. That's just African nations, right? You lump them all together in one category and call it black? I mean, that's just ignorant. It's, it's, it's meaningless. Um, and so the, the use of the term race, just in that way, whatever the term was, to divide people into black and white isn't, isn't very helpful. More than that, then, uh, if, if you want to use it to um, denote meaningful genealogical differences, it doesn't seem to me that skin color is a meaningful genealogical difference. I mean, it's, it's a variation in like half a dozen genes. Now, are there inherited differences which are significant in relation to how we should function in society? Well, plainly there are. There are hereditary illnesses, uh, some of which lead to significant disability, and so we want to treat people in a certain way if they need particular care because of that. A friend of mine who died a few years ago of cystic fibrosis, inherited disease, so we, we try to minister to her in particular ways. And, and then there are differences in things like, for example, so IQ, is, there's, a, there's a genetic component to that, and that, that means then that people who have a particularly high IQ might be well suited to certain uh, professions that wouldn't be so suitable for others, and then, and similarly across the kind of spectrum of uh, intelligence quotient, and so, so there are meaningful inherited differences between us. But why would we pick such a, a kind of divisive and decisive term like race and apply it to something so completely empty of significant content? I, and so I oppose it. It's not a biblical term. If anything, what Scripture emphasises is that, is that humans are all one race. And because the, the distinction between Jew and Gentile in God's purposes historically has, in my view now, no longer exists, based on the message of the New Testament. Um, and so we're all in the same category. And people sometimes say, well, we're just we're all members of the human race. I think that's right. So that needs fleshing out a little bit. But to, to use the term race in that way is highly misleading and just destructive of all kinds of, all the things that make for uh, proper human relationships. And, and it, it doesn't even help us to care for people who are meaningfully different. And there are meaningful differences, but we need, we need much more nuanced and fine-grained... Um, treat people as individuals. <laughs> like Just treating uh, a person according to their particular proclivities and needs and desires and their, their character, and that's what we need to do. Yeah, so that's a great question. Thank you. I appreciate that. Gentlemen, you're back. Okay. Um, I really appreciated your historical overview of the CRT movement. Um, but uh, just to kind of take us in a different direction mm -hmm. along the CRT um, theme, but from a historical perspective, what is the purpose of going against, I think they say, the traditional Western family structures within CRT? Yeah, okay, what's the purpose of going against the traditional Western family structures? You may know that the Black Lives Matter movement had a statement on its website for a while that explained that they opposed the Western nuclear family. That's right, yeah. Um, the purpose of it, I think there's a, a mixture of different things. So um, Marx knew he had to destroy the family. Because what family does is it, it creates, or no, it constitutes a kind of a, an identity that really matters to people, that cannot be, con cannot 
easily be worked against if the structure is left intact. Um, now, that, it's been interesting to me that that theme has been picked up by some of the, uh, the descendants of this movement, and as it's fragmented in, in different directions. So even kind of um, feminists, the feminist movement in, in some of its strands has been opposed to the family for various reasons. But I think that the simple answer to the question is that it's just, firstly, it's too strong a tie. Men will do things, women will do things for their children that they, they wouldn't do for other things. And if, and if you want um, race or sex, I object to the term gender for other reasons, um, race or sex or skin colour to be constitutive, you have to pull, up, pull at all the other things that could be more determinative of people's place in the world. Um, I, I, there may be other reasons as well. Um, uh, yeah, but, but it's at least that. Um, yeah, I think there, there may be other things, but maybe we'll come back to that later. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, the gentleman here and then another man, a couple of rows in front. So, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll get you the second table. Yeah. <coughs> so, you had um, systemic racism as sort of a catch-all box for things we can't name, and then cultural differences as just a fact of life in a lot of different mm -hmm. arenas. Um, what are we to do with sort of the things left kind of in between there? For instance, just down the road, we've got um, centuries-old white Methodist church, centuries-old black Methodist church. Yeah, yeah. Started out as racist reasons why we have two of the churches. Now has more, signif more signifying of cultural differences. Yeah, yeah. Um, are we to think about that difference, that divide, and are we to do anything with it? Yeah, very good. That's a really great question. So um, do you all hear the question? So down the road, there's a white Methodist church and a black Methodist church. Um, started out for racist reasons, but now exists more for historical reasons. Well, this is, so it highlights the, the way in which historical prejudice does propagate its effects, even if not its substance, down the generation. So one mistake is to impute to the effects the prejudicial substance that gave rise to them. So we don't want to say, well, all you white folks are racist for going to that church. Now, it might be that there are some there, just like it might be that there are some here. But that doesn't warrant the conclusion in itself. So that's the first mistake we could make. The next mistake we can make is to say, right, the solution is we throw you all in a big bucket and give it a shake, and then we, you, know, you, you act against people's will, in a sense, to, to divide them up in some arbitrary way. That's not wise either. I think what I positively what I'd say is um, a couple of things in pastoral terms. First is, uh, let's recognize the really, really deep-seated abiding effects of sin. And like, if, if there's nothing else which will motivate us to strive for godliness, let something like that be it. Now, there are many other motivations for godliness, but we could make foolish decisions now which you know, prejudicial decisions now, which could have really long-term effects and be really hard to undo. So we've got to recognize that. The second thing is, I think, um, uh, expect the same kind of gradual growth of mutual understanding um, and of, in that case, mixing, that you'd expect elsewhere. 
I'm urging you not to expect anything to be changed overnight. And I think um, it's, that's actually okay. Now, there are things you probably could do. I'll, I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, my fellow pastor at All Saints in Fort Worth is, uh, has established good friendships over the years. He's been there much longer than, than I have. He's established good friendships over the years with many other local pastors, some of whom have black skin. Now, that, like, if the pastors can't go out for lunch once every six months and just exchange prayer requests and, you know, come on, guys. <laughs> Who, whatever color skin you've got. That kind of thing will start to break down barriers. But re-erecting them in the name of social justice won't do it. Um, so I think that's um, one of the things I say. I, I, don't, I think this also gives me an opportunity to talk about um, um, another effect of... Um, oh, goodness, should we talk about this? Yeah, let's be honest about it, okay. Um, the, the prison population... Let's talk about the prison population. The prison population um, does not reflect equally or in, in, in the, the same proportions as the rest of the population, uh, different skin colors. Okay, that's widely known. No, it's just, that's just a fact. Let's say it more bluntly. There are more black people in prison per head of the black population of America than there are white people right now. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons uh, might be that... In the past, when there really was widespread, systematic, ungodly racial discrimination against black people, uh, larger numbers of black people were imprisoned unjustly. Now, maybe that still happens. I'm, I, I don't know. I'm not sure that there is evidence that it still happens. But if there is, well, God help us. Right. But certainly in the past, there is evidence of systematic discrimination against black people. And how many generations do you think it will take to undo that? If you Just think about the sociology. If you imprison a, an unduly high proportion of a certain community of people, which will tend, because of extant social prejudice, to marry and raise families or not within that community, uh, what you do is you, you basically imprison a significant proportion of men and you create... Uh, perverse incentives for the men who are still um, not in prison because, to not put it too crudely, they can sleep with a girl, get her pregnant, and there'll be an oversupply of other girls who'd be willing to start a relationship with him. You don't need to settle down because you can walk away. In other words, it creates a, an artificially high demand for men. And so what you have in the years following that uh, period of actual racist prejudice an alarming increase in the number of black single-parent families. And just look at the statistics. And, and what some people have noted, they've said, well, the Civil Rights Act comes in, and you get, start getting rid of the discrimination against black people, and then the number of black single-parent families goes through the roof. It's like, yes, of course it does. Because all those kids who grew up without black dads are now adults. And if you don't have the, the single most significant predictor of future outcomes... I'm not, is it the best or the, or the second best, is the existence of an intact family. And so we could, we could be seeing today the effects of actual prejudice from a couple of generations ago. And we, we need the kind of careful, nuanced, thoughtful 
analysis, both of the big picture and of individual people's situations, that prevents us from drawing the fatuous conclusion that, um, well, this community of people just can't function. Because as soon as you stop discriminating against them, they start increasing the number of single parent families. That, that would be a ludicrous misreading of the data. So is another way in which the effects of sin are deep and abiding through the generations, and, and it won't do just to draw glib and superficial conclusions from them. So that wasn't quite the question you were asking, but... Um, I'm going to say two more questions. we got Caleb here, one more just for sure. time, and then we want to ask some questions afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, so, uh, I was from China, so, but uh, I feel that there's a lot of difference because uh, the Warcraft which happened in 1970, that time in China. Usually, people need to be work or they will work. It's a, a working class, right? the farmer, worker. They need to be work, okay? And then uh, all they are, they are work, or student, okay? Or the college student. Mm -hmm. But United States is totally different. So it's uh, usually the working class and farmer, they are not, they are not work. And the people potentially to be work would be the high, the elite, or uh, rich people, or the highly educated people, uh, the mm. potentially. I'm not saying all of them, but uh, there are good amount of them. They are woke, and I just feel like, uh, what's the purpose? Why it's like that? Because it's totally different. Because uh, mm. in the communist uh, the theorist, uh, the rich people will be uh, will be canceled, uh, and then and then I. But uh, but in the United States, I don't see the purpose of the rich right. people. They want to be worked. So what's the purpose for that? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, um, yeah. <coughs> okay. I mean, you've made, your observation is a really shrewd one. Yes. Um, uh, let me just say one thing about it, which is, is somewhat tangential, but I think might be significant. The, the difference between, I mean, use the phrase, uh, I think use the phrase working class and, and yes. yeah. Well, At a risk of generalization, I don't think this is too much of a generalization, though. Um, what we call working class, and we, and we recognize the, the term, and I, and I don't intend it in a derogatory sense. Let's call it um, um, people who work with their hands, tradesmen, people who work in factories, uh, in manufacturing, uh, farming, agriculture, and so on, uh, which typically are manual tasks and require great skill, but un don't require high levels of tertiary education. Those professions keep you in contact with physical things, the actual fabric of the created world. And you know, there's nothing like milking a cow and then trying to get it to mate with a bull <laughs> to ingrain the ineradicable differences between male and female. I think this was, I forget the name of the guy who's reading a, a book and made this point, and I'm quoting from somebody, and I can't remember who it was. A bull is a bull and not a cow. <laughs> and if more of us had been raised on farms, then we wouldn't be so susceptible to the kind of nonsense that you find in some strands of the work movement. So, so actually being in touch with the fabric of the world. Um, I, Anthony Esselin, that's the guy, Anthony Esselin. Um, Things do not bend easily to lies. And, and in one sense, uh, the contemporary woke movement in some of its manifestations is an attempt to make things bend to lies. Things don't bend. 
But if you never, if you never worked on a farm, and if you're if you're in one of the kinds of professions which tends to be associated with more uh, elite, um, higher earning, um, tertiary educated um, vocations, most likely you're not a farmer. You're working with abstractions. You're you're uh, working in finance. You're working in IT, and so on. And you might be an engineer designing things, and you're sort of stuck with the laws of physics. But you're not actually having to screw two beams together in the rain. Um, and so those, kind, those kinds of professions leave you open to this nonsense that you can make the world change just by thinking differently about it. You, you can't. So, so I think that's part of it. But I think the question you've opened about, and the connection to China is a huge subject, and I'm, I feel um, ill-equipped to comment. I feel like I should ask you, really. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much for that. Appreciate one, one more. Anybody? Yeah. Comment and a question. Um, it was interesting you talked about the history of CRT and, and Marxism. Um, I was in a uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion training at my work, and during the slides, one of the quotes that popped up was explaining how managers need to deal with their employees, each according to their needs and each according to their abilities. Oh. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I, I know yeah. who said that, and that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and the other is when we're in these diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, uh, brainwashing sessions, whatever you want to call them. Um, <laughs> How do we approach that as Christians, and at what point do we nod, smile, and do our job? And, and, yeah. and how should we be thinking about that, about accepting the lies, nodding along with the lies, and, and, and when do we push back? Yeah, no. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to say I'm going to push back tomorrow, but it's, no, no, it's I'm just saying <laughs> for the future. Right now, it's fairly innocuous. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know that it always will be. I think, I think it's really, uh, you raised, in one sense, the crucial question for many of us, I say us, many of people here, and elsewhere, who are um, kind of at the mercy of secular employers who either are really bought into this or who feel the pressure to kind of go along with it. And in one sense, you've articulated the two options. There's a spectrum. You can just roll your eyes, nod politely, and go along with it at one end of the spectrum because it's like it's just one stupid, wasted half day. <laughs> or you could think, you know what, this is this is now cutting deep. This is, you know, you've got to state your pronouns in your email signature. And you've got to use everybody else's preferred ones, and you know, it, and and there's a spectrum of how frequent, intrusive, overbearing, uh, um, morally repulsive it all becomes. And the further you go towards this end of the spectrum, the more likely I think you want to say, "Listen, sir, I've I, I've worked here for nine years. I've I think I've done a reasonably decent job." Uh, I want you to know that I do respect you as a boss. I'm going to try and do the best job I can, but this and this and this precisely I, I find objectionable, and I, and I don't want to do it. I'm not going to, and I hope we can work through this, and I can try and explain why. So, so there's that measured, well-defined response. The other thing you've got to bear in mind, so you've got this scale between innocuous and it will be over by 5 o'clock and I can go home and then back to work and no, nothing will be different. Other end is really intrusive. Then you've got another spectrum of what your options are. So if you've got no other option that you're in a different position from a guy who's, you know, actually got a couple of other jobs and you've got a side hustle which you could big up and in six months that could be bringing in as much money as this stupid thing here that's causing all this aggravation, in which case I'd say go for it. You know, so you've got to be responsible in relation to your other uh, obligations and I wouldn't want to encourage anybody to jump prematurely into the void. I mean, there, there comes a point where you've got to jump um, the, the, and the the, the definitive marks along this spectrum. You know, don't tell lies. 
I, I think for what it's worth, um, let me give you one example. I think I would be willing to use um, a person's preferred name. You know, if I had a friend called Steve and he said, I want to be called Stephanie, and he's a friend, and I didn't, if I didn't think he was really malicious and ill-intentioned towards me, if I just thought he was confused, like so many of these poor teenagers and whatever are, I don't think I'd want to be uber provocative. I think I might be willing to use his name. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be willing to say she. Because that's just, like, that just ain't true. I'm not going to play silly games. But it also, it would depend on what their intentions were. If it looked like this is some kind of sting operation, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not, I, I think what, in other words, um, faithfulness to Christ entails the, the appropriate measure of grace in different circumstances. And I think there is a time for saying, you know, some, of these, some of these kids, I mean, we're going to be clearing up the mess from this, these transgender surgeries, gender reassignment surgeries for the next 60, 70 years. I mean, it's, it ain't funny to think that we're not going to have a 60-year-old man who had implants and removals and who now regrets it. And you might still be his friend. And if you've always stuck with him and, all, and you know, you called him Stephanie, but you never said she, I'd, I'd, I could see that. I could see, uh, and but I don't think you want to go, there are certain lines that you're not going to cross. So those, it's that how serious, what are my options, that's the kind of space I'd encourage you to operate in and, and, and talk to your pastor, get advice, you know, what do I do next? And, um, Thanks yeah. for the pass off. <laughs> 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 I thought you'd appreciate that. All right. Well, we, we certainly appreciate uh, everyone paying attention and bearing with us this evening. Um, and, you know, I'd say give... Uh, Dr. Jeffrey, a hand here. And <laughs> making more work for me later, that's great. Um, let's pray, and then uh, I'm sure he's willing to entertain a few uh, questions on the side afterwards. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we ask that you would grant us wisdom and grace. Please tear back the veil of misunderstanding, Lord, that is in our own eyes and hearts. Father, I pray that you would use us to extend your kingdom this week and our families in this community and to the four corners of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.